This is James Fox, and you're listening to That UFO Podcast. Hi everyone, Andy here. Welcome back to That UFO Podcast. This is your April recap pod with the highlights of the interviews that I brought to you this past month. Uh, April was a very busy month for me personally. I was working back in the office full time five days a week, which is a lot of travel and all that kind of stuff. But um, hopefully you've not seen any impact, maybe a few shows less than I would normally record with a couple of the breakdowns having to be given a miss this month. But hopefully be back on track come May. Interview wise, you won't have noticed any drop off because the interviews still came out as regularly as always. And we had some fantastic guests. We started off with Crypt. Chris Rutkowski, who you're going to hear first up. Chris talks about the numbers behind UAP reports and the idea of us visiting other planets and how that could relate to UAP aliens, potentially. We then moved on to Rich Hoffman of SCU, who was a very popular guest. He was fantastic to speak with. He's got an incredible resume, including being a scientist, an engineer, a defence contractor, among many, many other things. The part of the conversation I've included from Rich is what was his most compelling evidence for the visitation of, of UFOs, UAP, which was, was great. So you'll hear that from Rich. Then Avi Loeb returned to the podcast. Always a pleasure to speak with Avi. Uh, updates on the Galileo project. But I've included a, a seven-minute segment with Avi where we talked about anti-gravity and anti-gravity signatures where Avi done some explaining of what those could and could not be and how actually those pertain to just the universe as well. So fantastic, educational. I love speaking with Avi. I always learn quite a lot. And we finish, of course, with Lou Elizondo, who just last week spoke with me for 90 minutes. And what I've included from Lou's conversation, if you haven't heard it already, and even if you have, listen to it again, why not, is about 10 minutes. How humans would use UAP technology if we discovered it and the potential of the James Webb Telescope to impact this conversation. As always, folks, the May preview pod will be out just after this one. That'll have details of the shows for May, some huge guests making their first appearances on the podcast throughout May and some others just to be confirmed as well. There'll be the listener call-in show details and also just how you can get involved as well as well as other shows that will be coming up so yeah please check that may preview pod out it's always a shorter podcast but a good way to kind of keep in touch for for the month ahead and please get in touch with me if there's anything you would like to hear at ufo uap am at gmail.com or even email just to say hello if you're not on the social media side of things. And finally, before we get into the podcast, thanks to everyone who supports the podcast via Patreon, Apple, Spotify, YouTube. Patreon, it's patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast. The link is also in the description for this pod. You can sign up for $1 for early access, bonus content, and ad-free listening, which is always appreciated, of course. Apple, if you're an Apple listener, you get a two-week free trial of the premium service, which again is early access access free and bonus content spotify is uh you have to search on spotify for that ufo podcast premium and you'll see it's like 199 the same as apple to sign up or 299 or whatever your local currency is but it's it's less than the price of a starbucks coffee i can promise you that much and also it helps support the podcast and all that all that jazz which you know by now and finally you can support us via youtube and get early access to videos and ad free content on there as well the youtube's a real growing community if you do subscribe to any of those platforms and you're helping out the podcast financially, 
huge thank you get in touch with us and we'll send you the discord link for the server which is a very growing burgeoning community of like-minded folks discussing the ufo topic so get involved in that as well the main thing i always say this but i always mean it folks is just listening is massively appreciated and if you can leave a five-star review on your chosen platform please do and like and share the show and the engagement makes means a huge huge deal to us as well but that's enough for me let's hear first up from chris rutkowski just before we get to listener questions chris i want to ask what do you think right now given your expertise and your, your decades of research is the best explanation or explanations for the phenomenon people are witnessing well, I mean, we have to say at the outset that most cases uh, either have explanations or we don't have enough information for explanations. In fact, the task force report we were referring to, people make a big deal about the 143 cases or something uh, that were unexplained. That's actually not what the task force says. It says they simply didn't have enough information uh, to give a full explanation for all except one case, which they determined was definitely a deflating balloon. The other 443 were not unexplained, as some people say. They are actually simply, uh, they couldn't pinpoint an exact explanation for what it was, though they certainly had their their uh, their ideas. That's similar to what we have for the bulk of UFO data. Every year, the Canadian UFO Survey looks at, as, as I mentioned, you know, somewhere around 1,000 cases. Uh, I'll give you a spoiler alert. It's much lower than that uh, for 2021. Um, but uh, of those, a very small percentage are what we call high-quality unknowns. Uh, the vast majority either have possible explanations, insufficient information, or in fact explanations. Um, and so if you apply that across the board, um, you do end up with a fairly significant number. Um, in, uh, in the Canadian UFO survey, we're somewhere around 23,000 separate UFO reports now uh, over the past 30 years. Um, and, um, uh, even if let's say 1% of all those are high quality unknown cases, uh, it adds up to, uh, to dozens and dozens of interesting cases that probably, uh, deserve some explanation. Now, my background in astronomy tells me that it's very unlikely that, uh, that an alien civilization is sending a craft here. Um, I'm quite, quite aware of the, uh, psychosocial explanations, um, uh, Earth lights phenomena. Um, uh, I, 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 I've read about the, the various interdimensional time travel theories and so forth. Um, the scientist in me says, nah. But at the same time, we simply don't know. Uh, I, and it's uh, actually scientific to simply shrug our shoulders and say, we're not sure uh, what this may represent. The possibility is there that there are aliens out there. Um, it's uh, also possible that somewhere um, uh, in our galaxy, uh, an extraterrestrial civilization has developed uh, ways of traveling through space in a way that we don't understand yet, not breaking the laws of physics, uh, but bending them in some way that we don't understand. Um, but we don't have any evidence of how that's possible. We don't have any proof. Um, so we don't have proof that aliens are here. The sightings of, of witnesses by themselves uh, are simply not enough. 
uh, and we maybe have to be the ultimate doubting Thomases, and uh, I'm perfectly willing to put my hand in the side of, uh, of a, an alien. What always gives me hope in that respect, Chris, that especially when people ask me about, well, why would these things becoming potentially great distances if they're not from different realities, dimensions, all those sorts of possibilities? Why would they be coming here? And I always use, well, right now, as, as advanced as we are technologically, we'll be incredibly far further down the line in 100 years 200 years but right now that one of the peaks of our technological you know achievements has been we've got our little robot on mars that runs around every so often going a very short distance and it's got a little helicopter on it that every so often flies up and goes 10 feet and then comes back and collects samples and data which if you were on mars and i'm not saying there are people on mars but if you were there witnessing that that would look crazy and would make no sense so you would probably think why would some advanced species send a robot here with another little robot on top of it and if someone had 500 years or a thousand years head start on us as a civilization it's not a great leap to think what would their drones look like what would their rovers look like and would they be tic tacs and cigars and triangles flying about in our skies and oceans? So that always gives me a little bit of hope when I when I think of that potentially in those great distances that might be getting traversed. Absolutely, and I think it's very possible. Um, and uh, you know, we we might not even be able to recognize uh, a visit from an alien. Uh, it's it's certainly possible. Mm. But what we can say is that so far, with our understanding of uh, physics and biology and and uh, our understanding of um, observational techniques and, and uh, observational capabilities of humans and their interpretations that are affected by biases and psychological and psychosocial uh, factors, we simply don't have uh, enough to say it's definitely happening. But hey, you know, we live in the Steven Spielberg of the James Cameron universe, and uh, uh, we expect that aliens are out there. Uh, and in fact, I think most people would be disappointed if they aren't. Uh, people sometimes point to the Drake equation, which calculates uh, how many alien civilizations there might be in our uh, our galaxy. And uh, depending on what uh, numbers you plug into the equation, you either get that there are uh, tens of thousands of alien civilizations out there just waiting to contact us, or none whatsoever. And uh, uh, the limiting factor is something called the lifetime of a civilization. If there are civilizations out there, what happens to them? How come we don't see uh, any evidence of them? Well, it's very possible that after a certain period of, of uh, development, something happens to the civilization that perhaps stops them from developing further. Let's hope that's not happening. <laughs> I want to ask you, though, Rich, over the last few years, what to you has been the most compelling evidence for UFOs being constructed by something that's not necessarily human? Well, I mean, you, you have to look at the Nimitz case. I mean, that, that, that case has got, you know, visual, it's got radar, it's got, uh, there were, at one point there was like a belief to be some sort of sonar uh, detection of something uh, but you have you have uh, all that that high advanced equipment that was there witnessing uh, or actually capturing a lot of information that we typically don't get, and and I think that on that one particular case that you see a tremendous 
amount of evidence. And that's the one we spent the most time documenting. In fact, our report is up on our website is, is basically, I think it's, it's now not 177, it's 277 pages long. And, and, and it's like, you know, we actually interviewed the pilots. We interviewed the people on the Princeton. We interviewed the uh, other people who are around on the different ships. And it, to me, it, you know, when you, when we looked at it from the physics standpoint, okay, when you have an object that's being described, that goes from 20,000 feet and it instantaneously stops above sea level in less than one second, point se in 0.78 seconds, right? When we do the math and we do the physics on that and, and we look at that, okay, first off, if you have an object that's about the size of the F F-15 aircraft or, or, you know, the F-18 aircraft, excuse me, uh, if you have a, and you assume that it has about that same amount of weight and you took that and you dropped it, if you would, Think about that. It's got to. It's going to accelerate down, and then about maybe halfway point. Our technology would say you'd have to, uh, you know, put on the brakes if you would, mm. and in order to stop above the water. So, think about that in terms of the acceleration down halfway point, and then suddenly now it's decelerating to actually come to a complete stop. We haven't got anything that can do that. The material that that we have would have disintegrated on the way down because it couldn't have taken uh, the, that kind of G-force at all. You have an object that was recorded uh, both on uh, video as well as the when uh, Fravor saw it go to the cap point, uh, as well as you have a measurement of the object that if you were dropping from 20,000 feet and stopping at sea level. So there's three different measures there. All of them exceeded something on a scale of about Mach 50 or 55, you know. And so with that kind of speed, which we have nothing on the planet that can do that at all, and we've got nothing structurally that could have withstood the G-force, we have nothing that, we're, uh, that, that actually can basically make it zero mass, if you would, where it was dropping from that height. No sonic boom. The kinetic power would have been the equivalent of the output of Hoover Dam. And so how do you have any, and, and it's not aerodynamically sound at all in terms of the shape. There were no indications of any propulsion system on that object at all. And you're not seeing any massive heating up in the atmosphere of an object like you would if you had something that was by hypersonic, uh, you know, all these hypersonic missiles that are going more than Mach 5 you know, they heat up in the atmosphere. So you have to have the right materials to be able to, to deal with that. We haven't got anything that can overcome that. And yet, when you take a look at that one case, it corresponds equally with a case from 1955 or something in 1954, where they talk about an object that was hovering and that went, it took instantaneous acceleration, would shoot off, make 90 degree turns that would, that would not apparently heat up there was no sound, no sonic boom. And so the similarities throughout history have always been the same as it was with the Tic Tac. So the Tic Tac is not necessarily unusual in itself. It's, it's the fact that you had so much excellent, credible witnesses that makes, to me, in my mind, 
the, the most compelling case. Folks, it's never too early to start spring cleaning as everyone ventures back out to stargaze, UFO spot or attend a conference in person. It's time to clear out your winter tic-tacs and join the 4 million other men worldwide who trust Manscaped by going to manscaped.com for 20% off and free shipping with the code ANDYUFO. Manscaped has the full package you need for spring cleaning this year. The Performance Package 4.0 is the only black budget tools you need to keep your orbs looking good for those shaky camera phones. To start off your spring cleaning, use the Manscaped Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer to get the most precise shave on your hedge. Did we mention it's waterproof as well? No need to worry about any transmedium travel with this tool. Equipped with an LED light so good it'll have its own 60-minute segment. The start of spring also marks the start of Testicular Cancer Awareness Month in April. Manscaped has partnered with the Testicular Cancer Society to bring awareness to testicular cancer, men's health and early cancer detection. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code ANDYUFO at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code ANDYUFO at manscaped.com. It's to throw out your old hygiene habits and upgrade your life it, it can be hard to speak to people who are, are so science and data driven because it's difficult to not go into the speculative side of the subject however if you'll if you'll allow me for one moment many people would claim that the craft or uaps are potentially using anti-gravity technology that's something that's quite common would it be pertinent for people like yourself in the galileo project to look for signatures like gravitational waves and could you potentially track these using ligo or other laser interferometers okay so let me first say what is known uh, in terms of the current science that we know about uh, first of all uh, according to Einstein's theory of gravity, you can get uh, uh, repulsive gravity. And uh, in fact, you get it when the vacuum, when, you know, the vacuum is what, what you have when you remove all the matter. So when the vacuum itself has some mass density, mass per unit volume or energy per unit volume, it, you can show that that in, in, in the context of Einstein's theory of gravity, that gives you a repulsive force. And actually, we observe it. <laughs> so Einstein thought, well, it's a mistake of my theory that, uh, you know, it gives this uh, so-called cosmological constant, you know, that has to do with the energy of the vacuum. Uh, he thought, oh, I should get rid of it because otherwise, you know, you know, he was thinking about it just to balance the expansion of the universe. At the time, he thought the universe doesn't expand. So he thought having a repulsive force of gravity balancing the attractive force of matter would make the universe static, not expanding if you have a perfect balance between the two forces. But then he realized he was wrong because Edwin Hubble um, argued the universe is expanding and, and uh, Einstein said, oh, that was a mistake. I, I shouldn't have thought about this repulsive gravity. But it turns out that it exists. And in fact, even though the universe is expanding, uh, its expansion is accelerating um, recently. And uh, that means that there is something pushing galaxies apart, uh, a repulsive gravitational force, which is believed to be a result of this cosmological constant, the, the vacuum energy density. And so it exists. We know of that. Uh, what is the nature of the vacuum energy that is causing this expansion? You know, where does it come from? From a fundamental physics point of view, we don't really understand that. Okay, but the existence of a repulsive gravity, anti-gravity, is known to to be real because that, the Nobel Prize was awarded for that, and 
for, for the discovery of the accelerated expansion of the universe. Uh, so the universe is not only expanding, it's expanding with a speed that is increasing over time, as if something is pushing everything apart. And that happens uh, only in recent uh, history. Uh, if you go back in time, at early on, the density of matter was so large, much larger than the density of the vacuum, the matter the matter density dominated, the, the radiation density dominated, and at that point, gravity was attractive. So it's only a recent phenomenon over the past um, half of the age of the universe that matter and radiation were diluted enough for the vacuum to take over and dominate and, and, and show this accelerated expansion. Before that, it wasn't really important, uh, except maybe very early on in the universe. Okay, so that's what we know. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that we can manipulate the vacuum and, and sort of uh, engineer it to propel things uh, based on what we know. We don't know how to do that. Let's put it that way. We don't know how to sort of excavate the vacuum and, 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 and you know, use it for propulsion. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it cannot be done. I mean, perhaps uh, a more advanced scientific civilization would be able to do that. So I wouldn't rule it out. It's just that we don't have any idea of how to do that, how to, you know, propel something using the vacuum. We don't know how to do that. Um, and the, the other thing I would say is gravitational waves are really difficult to excite. Um, but even if you excite them, uh, it's, you know, in order to produce a, a meaningful level of a gravitational wave so that we can detect it with a, an observatory like LIGO or, or the future observatories that we will build. Um, what you read is what you need is a, a very high concentration of, of mass, like you get uh, in a black hole. Um, but the point is, if you have that concentration of mass, just the Newtonian effect, forget about gravity, gravitational waves, just the fact that you have this mass that is you know, a very large mass in order to generate strong waves, that mass by itself acts on anything on Earth using, you know, based on Newton's law of gravity, okay? So just like the sun acts on us or Jupiter acts on us. So before you even worry about gravitational waves, there would be this Newtonian effect that would move things around. And we would notice it because the oceans would show a tide. And so don't think about gravitational waves as if, that would be the only way we would learn about a massive compact uh, object that, you know, because long before that, uh, there would be effects like on the oceans, a tidal effect due to the Newtonian gravity that would move the oceans around in a way that is noticeable. So, so I would suggest not to think about gravitational waves as a good uh, way of detecting um, objects because there are much bigger effects that come into play before Gravitational waves uh, affect us or are measurable just based on gravity. I'm, I'm saying there, there are other effects based on gravity that are much stronger, like the Newtonian force uh, of a passing object. So um, it's very difficult to generate detectable gravitational waves without producing a strong Newtonian force. That's my point. So I would argue... Let's not think about gravitational waves as a good way to detect things. We can use Newtonian uh, gravity uh, to detect them much more easily. And 
On top of that, there are other things that we can observe, of course, using um, light, you know, radiation, either reflected off the object or emitted by the object, much easier to detect, much, much easier. Lou, moving on to the future, I've got a, a couple of questions here. You've just mentioned that the come back in five years comment, you've made that before. What could the landscape of this conversation look like realistically with the progress being made now and looking at that potential growth or accelerated progress? What could it look like? Wow. Well, let me answer that by saying I am extremely hopeful for this next generation. Um, it is this next generation that is going to 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 inherit this this topic and hopefully not make the same mistakes my generation made regarding this topic. Um, I think most of the answers are, are going to be within the next 20 years that a lot of the answers we're looking for. We may have answers in the next 20 years, and I think it's going to be up to this next generation to, to solve some of these these, these big questions. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think we can hopefully, first of all, know what our government has known for the last 70 years about this topic, first and foremost. Before we can go move forward, we first need to, to, to get a handle on what we already know. And, and that's going to be a very difficult task because there's a lot of interest and equities at stake. There's, there's, there's a lot of baggage, um, and that baggage needs to be sorted out and addressed. Um, so my hope is that in the next 20 years, we will have, I guess, in the future, right, um, that we, we know more about the past. We can, we can have a definitive understanding of who was involved in what projects and what, what insight was gained as a result of, of those efforts. Um, if we can achieve that in the next 20 years, then I think the following 20 years after that, we can start maybe getting answers to some of the big questions, right, that everybody wants to know. Where are they from? What are the intent? What's the intent? You know, what? How, do, how, how does it work? Um, that's that's just me personally speaking. I, I could be wrong. That's 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 my that's my perspective. I'm going to ask you a question just because you you mentioned there what, who could they be, where could they be from, etc. And Dan might laugh at this because I called him when I thought about this on the bus home from work the other day, and I very badly. Um, elaborated to him what I wanted to ask if we as a species Lou discovered the technology to travel in different dimensions space or time we land upon a craft and we can zip into say a different dimension like you've talked about before there's potentially a shadow biome or maybe they're here but not here directly how would we as a species do you think use that technology would we behave in a similar way to how these others may be behaving you know, Mother Nature, she's, she's really clever. She's had a long time to figure out uh, biology. And there may be a reason why we don't have the answers yet that we're seeking. Maybe we're just simply as a species not ready for it, right? Um, perhaps we're not ready for nuclear technology. Look, 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 look of the angst that it's causing right now in, in the Ukraine. And now you have, you know, uh, two countries that are fighting each other potentially putting the entire world at the brink of war, right? And annihilating all living species on this planet. Um, are we really ready for that technology uh, as a species? Um, I, I don't know. Um, you know, are, are we giving a loaded handgun to a child if we were to have this type of technology? Um, you know, I think some, some people are probably ready for it. 
and could be trusted with it. But there's a whole lot of people that I don't think can be. You know, we have rogue nations out there all the time. And look, I'm, I'm going to, I'm a patriot to my country, but I'm going to tell you, you know, there's only been one country so far in the last century that's ever used uh, uh, an atomic technology against, you know, other human beings. And that was my country in World War II. Now, arguably, it may have saved many more lives. Uh, but, but, we, you know, the moment we we discovered that technology, we we use it against our fellow man, uh, and that's 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 problematic because that's human nature. That's not just an American thing. It's not just a Russian or a Chinese thing. That's that's human nature. Um, you know, you, you give one monkey uh, a, a stone and you give another monkey a club. Well, guess what? They're going to use it against each other because that's that's what we do. We, we, you know, species tend to be violent, uh, unfortunately, because. It's part of our evolution for survival and, and the competition for resources. It's 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 innate. It's it's part of our our, our DNA. Uh, plants even do it. They compete for resources. Humans do it. Every animal on this planet. It's almost uh, an unwritten rule of, of of survival, right? So, are we prepared for some sort of technology that now we can export uh, our our tendencies, um, perhaps across the cosmos? You know, would would that even be wise? Knowing how we how we behave with each other, are we really prepared to be part of any? If there is some sort of cosmic community, so to speak, are we really even prepared to 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 interact with that? Um, I, I I'm not so sure that we are, but I do also think that the truth is important. I think we must tell the truth. I think our species is prepared for the reality that we're not alone. Now. I'm not saying we're necessarily prepared to, to to go out there and engage, but but the mere fact that we're not alone is, I think, it's it's that's not a a fact that should be classified or, or kept secret from 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 citizens of the world. I also think it might help us, maybe just maybe, treat each other a little better if we know that there's something bigger out there, something something that is 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 now touchable, if you will. Um, you know, can we learn from that? Can can we learn the fact that hey, you know, we don't have to destroy ourselves to to evolve. We don't have to beat each other up with a club or a stone. You know, we can work together and maybe use a club and the stone as a tool and to the benefit of the of you know of of, of the species. You know, um, well, let me ask no just to follow that one slightly, and hopefully I word this this appropriately. Say a group of responsible individuals, I'm going to say yourself and Christopher Mellon are given this technology, okay? Would you behave the same way observing another intelligent species on their planet? Would you stay at a great height? Would you observe their navy from a distance? You know, do you appreciate how these objects appear to behave and do you think we would do exactly the same? Well, we, we, we do now, don't we? When we when we fly over the the Serengeti in Africa with a helicopter, looking at the the migratory patterns of wildebeest, right? We stay a safe distance. We we fly over the herd, probably scare the hell out of them when we're flying. Sometimes we may decide to dart one and, and pull some blood samples to to see you know the health of the herd and, and whatnot, the reproductive uh, health, and, and then uh, you know we, we we fly away. And of course the the wildebeest wakes up you know, a couple hours later with, you know, a sore button, like, what the hell was that? <laughs> you know? um, we, we, we do that now. We do it in, in the deep oceans. Uh, we, that's, that's kind of the, what, what science does, isn't it? We, we observe. Um, science is the art of observation. 
uh, and, and understanding. And in order to understand, you have to observe. And I think that's precisely probably what, what, what we would do anyway, whether, whether to me or Chris or not, I think we would do that as a species. Uh, we would, we would continue doing what we do now with our own, with, with even our own species. Right. Um, so. You mentioned that 20 years time, future generations may benefit from the questions and the progress that's hap- that are happening now. One of the tools that we'll have in just a few months is the James Webb Telescope, which will be up and running at full functionality. How important a role in our understanding of who we are and are we alone do you think this will or could play? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just another tool in the tool bag, isn't it? Right. I mean, you don't build a house with just a hammer or just a screwdriver. You have to have a tool bag to, to build a house. And, and that's precisely what the James Webb Telescope is and the Galileo Project with what they're doing and, and other, other efforts. Um, you know, these are just another tool that you need ultimately to, to, to build the house. Um, some tools are used more than others. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, it's, it, you really want a complete tool bag if you want to do a good job and build a, build, build a strong house. Um, you know, the problem with, with, with telescopes, you know, deep, deep field telescopes is that, it's a lot like looking at the sky through a straw. Um, you know, you can see very, very far, but it's only a very, very small portion of the sky. And, you know, you also have focal issues, you know, something, you know, I, I, people know that I, I'm, a, you know, I have a, I'm a bit of a, a gun guy, right? I, I, I have firearms. And, and when you're looking through a scope, one thing is interesting because when you're looking at an object way, way, way far away, you can have something pass right by in front of you. But because the optics are the way they are, you're not going to pick it up because the the, the focus is on a very distant object. And that's what's in focus. Anything in front of that field becomes increasingly more and more blurry until eventually something can pass right in front of it. And you won't even see it because the the focus is so far downrange. Um, That's the problem with 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 a lot of telescopes in general. You know, unless you're focusing on something. you, there's a really good possibility you're not you're not going to see it. First of all, you have to be looking at the right part of the sky, and then you have to be looking at the right depth, right? And sky is, as we know, is infinite, right? So how, how do you know where to <laughs> where to focus if you want to see something? Um, so those are some of the challenges with with you know modern technology. It's really really good if you have a static object you're looking at, but if you have an object that's moving, it becomes more complicated. If you don't know where it's going to be in the sky, when, whatnot, so. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer. A little baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Folk. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little more